morning. Welcome to Rising. The show of shows is here, and I'm so glad that Bacha Angar Sargon is joining me for it. Bacha, what is on deck? I am so glad to be here with you, Robbie. Today we have associate editor um, at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, who will be discussing the tragic stabbing of author Salman Rushdie. And Daniel Davis and Trita Parsi are going to join us to look back at the U.S. withdrawal out of Afghanistan one year later. But first, of course, we want to discuss the latest with the Mar-a-Lago raid. The New York Times reports that at least one Trump lawyer signed a statement on June 3rd that all documents marked as classified and held in Mar-a-Lago had been given back, actually. The DOJ has since filed to subpoena surveillance footage from the estate, which includes viewing from outside a storage room that showed after one instance in which officials were in contact with Trump's team that boxes were moved in and out of that room. And according to NBC, the search warrant signed by Judge Bruce Reinhardt shows the raid was part of an investigation into potential obstruction of justice and violations of the Espionage Act. Fox News obtained the Trump raid search warrant and discussed what the FBI took from our lago. Let's watch. We know there are three pages of items that were taken from Mar-a-Lago. I want to read some of them to you. We're told that uh, the FBI took 20 boxes of items from the premises, including one set of documents marked as various classified, top secretive, and sensitive information documents. The property receipt, which is also part of this, indicates that FBI agents collected four sets of top secret documents three sets of secret documents, and three sets of confidential documents. The list also includes the FBI taking a leather-bound box of documents, binders of photos, and handwritten notes. And as far as the actual property receipt, we're told uh, the clemency uh, letter that was written on behalf of Roger Stone, uh, President Trump's longtime confidant, was taken by the FBI. Also some information about the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, uh, and we're told there were other photos, uh, miscellaneous box of secret documents. So basically, you get the whole point here. And I'm, I'm going through this as we're looking, um, that there were some documents taken. However, I suspect, and I don't know this for a fact, that the Trump team will likely say he classified, he declassified all of this before he left office. To that point, Trump's office has responded saying Saturday that the former president had declassified the documents that were present at Mar-a-Lago. The FBI and DOJ have since seen an uptick in threats to federal law enforcement in the wake of the raid on the Trump household, according to NBC. So that is, I guess, kind of the big question. If he, if the, if the argument that Trump's going to make is that, well, look, I'm the ultimate authority on what is deemed classified and what's declassified. I have declassified all these documents, so then it's not improper for me to have taken them or removed them from the White House or wherever they were. Uh, does that is that a persuasive argument? Do you think, Batya? Well, we know that he didn't take the sort of official steps to right. declassifying these documents, right? There's no record of that. So I could see how some people would say that this is once again Trump flouting norms and then, you know, his political opposition wildly overreacting to that, right? Like how mm -hmm. important is that, you know, official process of declassification? Well, it depends like, you know, how knee deep in the sort of expertise class you are, right? You know, experts tend to like things done according to a certain way, whereas other people outside of that class would be sort of like how that in and of itself could never justify this huge breach of norms of what happened at Mar-a-Lago during the raid.
Right. Although it's it sounds like then to go the other way, it sounds like he was given plenty of opportunity, right, to give back the documents or to go through whatever the proper procedures were, and that was just not done. And so we've come to this this bridge where look, they can always get you for something, right? If they try hard enough, I guess there's there's procedure there's crimes, and then there are procedural crimes. And if they try hard enough, right? Obstruction of justice is very common. <laughs> Efforts to you know thwart the law enforcement agencies from going after you or for putting you for behind bars. You're trying to stop them, and that's obstruction of justice, which can be very very silly. On the other hand, this almost seems very easily avoided if they had just like done the bare minimum. And also, Trump, you know, was. Very very, he signed laws making these kinds of things stricter in order to punish, you know, the kind of the Hillary Clinton email type thing. So it's very, it is also very Trumpian to be kind of become ensnared in like wanting greater law enforcement of this kind of thing. And now, of course, have that be used against him, which is something I wish more, <laughs> uh, more Republicans who are in this moment, this one little moment right now of realizing that, hey, law enforcement can be weaponized against uh, our, against our side, against you know anyone deemed a political threat to the regime or to the deep state. This can be the tools we have voted to give them can be used against us. How interesting. And I wish they would, okay, then act on that. <laughs> then, then, you know, defang some of these institutions, then get rid of these tools because they are used, you know, not, in, not they'll never just be used against your enemies. They'll be used by, by, by the regime, by the, you know, by the bureaucracy of law enforcement, which is not a strictly political organization, but something that you know can fight Republicans and Democrats depending on who they think is is a threat to the institution. So it would be it would behoove Republicans to be a little bit more consistent. And then, of course, I'm not sure Democrats have any consistency or here. They're just saying you know whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever the FBI needs to do, they should do it because they don't perceive any threat from them right now. Yeah, um, I, I do think it's important to point out that um, Trump has claimed, and it does, there seems to me to be evidence that this is true, that they, from his point of view, his team was completely uh, cooperating with the DOJ. Um, the DOJ had a subpoena in uh, June, I believe. They stopped by Mar-a-Lago to pick up some boxes, and Trump made an appearance at that meeting. So from his point of view, this was a sort of friendly process that he was cooperating with, and then they sort of radically escalated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to me, and I'm going to talk about this in my radar, What's so interesting about the warrant um, and the receipt is that it likes so much when it comes to Trump. It had just enough information in it to confirm the biases of both sides, right? But not to actually give an honest person enough information to understand whether or not, you know, this justified the raid. So it, it sort of, in a way, entrenched people into their corners um, and also into their hypocrisies, as you're pointing out. You know, last week, I don't think either side really covered themselves right. in glory. Let's put it that way. And there's no, everyone should understand this, everyone, including Trump, everyone, there's no such thing as a friendly meeting, a friendly sit down with law enforcement. There's no <laughs> such thing. They're always looking for information. They're always waiting for you to say something wrong. Michael Flynn said the same thing. That's the exact same thing that I thought it was a friendly discussion about certain things that he'd had. And then what happens? He, you know, he gets charged with whatever it was, perjury or obstruction of justice. Same deal. They, you can have, have attorneys present, make the, whatever information they want or they want you to give them, you know, have an attorney sign off on it. Give them that information. Don't just like, oh yeah, we'll have a friendly conversation. It's Never friendly. Never friendly. So meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is coming to Trump's defense over the weekend. Let's listen to that. And you look at the raid at Mar-a-Lago 
and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to remember, maybe someone here can remind me about when they did a search warrant at Hillary's house in Chappaqua, when she had a rogue server and she was laundering classified information. I don't remember them doing that. I do remember them manufacturing a false conspiracy theory about Russia collusion. I remember that. That was not true. That was an abuse of power. I remember a lawyer for the FBI got caught doctoring an application for FISA surveillance against an innocent man. I remember the FBI at Merrick Garland's direction being sicked on parents going to school board meetings. Yeah, I mean, as typical, like, I remember a lot of those things, too, and I'm sure you do as well. And those were bad. Those were, uh, I, I think many of them were bad. I, I do think, uh, you know, with the, the schools, the, uh, that memo about, oh, be wary about, you know, parents at school meetings was, in fact, really bad and was not a, a good response to legitimate concerns and complaints from parents who wanted to make their frustration with schools over curriculum, closures, everything else known. And, you know, of course, Russia, the Russia Gate we've talked about on the show a million times. That said, all of those things don't mean that, you know, all those things could have been bad without that having any bearing on the, the situation we're currently in. But do you think, I'm curious for your take on, and maybe you're going to get more into this on your radar, I don't want to give, give away the game, but uh, <laughs> you know, the parallels between Hillary's emails and this, do you, do you think that they're fair? Um, well, to me, the the real parallel is um, the one that Darvio Morrow drew l last week here on Rising um, between what the FBI did to Dr. King and has done to Black Americans pursuing mm -hmm. civil rights, you know, for for so long. Um, you know, the 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 that feeling of like, well, we recognize this, you know, we know mm -hmm. what it's like to feel politically persecuted by the FBI. I think that's really interesting, and I was kind of hoping that, you know, in in uh, DeSantis's speech, he was going to end up there. You know, I remember when they, you know, smeared Dr. King, you know, the sacred emblem of civil rights, you know, and tried to make him commit suicide, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, that's the real parallel here. Um, you know, of course, there are differences, but I, I really hope that, that, like you were saying, that this brings Republicans a new understanding of what black Americans face when it comes to law enforcement and the, you know, what you were pointing out exactly like that there are there are some americans who never get a fair shake the way that others do um you know at another point i would point out I, I, the wall street journal made a really good point in their weekend editorial um they argued that you know when when you do bring law enforcement to bear on a former president and a potentially future president that is an inherently political act so when merrick garland says you know no one is above the law of course of course that is true but at the same time um you are engaging in politics you cannot separate that out when you're talking about somebody who got 72 million votes that man represents something extremely important in the american public sphere and you know that that really is a, i think a very important piece of it that can't be removed no doubt. Well, we'll continue having this discussion with your radar and then mine as well coming up next. Bacha, what's on your radar? It's not really my radar. It's kind of all of our radar, right? Um, you all know by now that the FBI raided former President Donald Trump's private home, Mar-a-Lago, last week and retrieved 20 boxes. We all know now from the unsealed search warrant and property receipt that these boxes included a host of documents, including Roger Stone's executive grant of clemency, a leather-bound box of documents, two binders of photos, a handwritten note, 
info re-president of France and 11 sets of classified documents. Some of these were marked top secret or TSSCI, which stands for top secret sensitive compartmented information, meaning documents that are supposed to be stored in a special facility due to their sensitive nature. You all know by now that the search followed a January visit by the National Archives, who retrieved 15 boxes, and you know that the Justice Department subpoenaed more records in the spring. Some of those were turned over by Trump's team in June, who Trump claims were fully cooperating, but investigators then believed that there were more documents that should not have been at Mar-a-Lago, which is what prompted the search. Now, the affidavit laying out what exactly convinced the judge that evidence for a crime might be found at Mar-a-Lago has not yet been unsealed. But the probable cause was related to supposed evidence of violations of federal law, including the Espionage Act, which bans gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, as well as other statutes banning, concealing, removing, or mutilating documents and falsifying records in federal probes. That's it. That is all we know. In fact, it's all anybody knows, apart from a small number of people who work for the DOJ and the FBI and have read the affidavit. Contrary to what thousands of pundits and politicians want you to believe, this is all the information they have too. They do not know more than you, which means that they are not better equipped to judge whether or how big a security breach the documents seized represent, and whether or not they justify the historic norm-breaking step of raiding the home of a former and potential future president. It is just too soon to tell. And your guess is as good as anyone who is cosplaying as an expert on Twitter or cable news. There has been other reporting from unnamed sources, like a Washington Post report that claimed that classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among those sought by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago. There has been reporting from Fox News that the records seized were covered by attorney-client privilege. There has also been plenty of breathless conjecture from the producers who brought you the Steele dossier and the rest of the Russiagate hoax like an NBC News report claiming, absent any data, that the documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago could include names of CIA sources in Moscow, and a slate piece arguing that because the Espionage Act was named in the warrant, this implies that we're well past simple mishandling of classified information and now entering the possible realm of foreign nations being given classified information to give them an advantage over the United States. Meanwhile, over on the right, Republicans have been calling for abolishing the FBI and some even for civil war. When did liberals, who once knew just what the FBI was capable of doing to people like Dr. King, become the side of placing absolute faith in the feds, the side cheering on the use of the Espionage Act of all things? And when did the right become the side of abolishing the FBI? It's just the latest example of how Trump continues to scramble the categories of American public life, turning Democrats into pro-war, anti-Russia hawks and Republicans into anti-war, anti-trade populists. Now he's got the left cheering on prosecutorial overreach and the Espionage Act and the right calling for defunding law enforcement. What a feat. Contrary to what the left-wing media wants you to believe, it is simply too soon to tell whether former President Trump put national security at risk with the documents he had at Mar-a-Lago. Certainly no one would argue that Roger Stone's grant of clemency alone would have been enough to justify a raid on a private citizen's home and office to say nothing of a former president. As for all the documents labeled top secret, 
There were over 4 million Americans with security clearance as of 2017, though not, of course, at the same level of the president. And as the Wall Street Journal pointed out in a weekend editorial, it has been 18 months since Mr. Trump left the White House. So why the sudden urgency that required Monday's full-scale search? If the documents were serious nuclear secrets, you'd think the Justice Department would have demanded their return as soon as that was known. Still, contrary to what the right-wing media wants you to believe, Trump does seem to have kept a whole lot of records that didn't belong at Mar-a-Lago, many of which, true, he returned, but not before being subpoenaed. And the president didn't take the proper steps to declassify these documents while still in office. Also, contrary to what the right has claimed, there seems to be no evidence that the raid is part of a larger coordinated Democratic plot to bar Trump from office, given that the head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, is a, a Trump appointee. Still, that doesn't mean I don't understand why people think this is part of a larger plot. It's clear that Democratic elites feel powerless to defeat Trump at the ballot box, and most would do anything in their power to bar him from running again, moral or otherwise. Many could scarcely conceal their delight at last week's events, just barely hiding their smug elation at the, quote, delicious development under a patina of disapproval, although some hit it better than others. One of Trump's greatest gifts has always been his ability to make his political en enemies match him flaw for flaw in a race to the bottom. But Trump has never mattered as much as what he symbolizes, an abandoned and demoralized multiracial working class whose communities and families have been destroyed by the elites of both parties and who then have to suffer through the smug condescension of the very people who ship their futures off to China. To many of those people, there is something inevitable about the FBI targeting Trump over what might turn out to be a red herring, because they can imagine that happening to them, not for having access to classified documents, but for being targeted unfairly by the elites of the liberal media who sneer at them day in and day out, or the liberal elites who control our social media platforms and kick them off for saying things about COVID that turn out to be true six months later. Many on, on the right have used Trump as a shortcut to getting votes from working class voters, forgetting that Trump the man is smaller than the righteous rage he came to be an avatar for. Meanwhile, on the left, instead of trying to understand these people who were once the Democrats' base, liberal and leftist elites choose to mock and dehumanize them. As President Obama advisor Ben Rhodes tweeted last week as the raid became public news, the strangest thing about this epoch of American history will always be that tens of millions of grown-ups decided to form a cult-like devotion to, of all available people, Donald Trump. Apparently for the left, the working class traded in clinging to their guns, Bibles, and bigotries for clinging to Trump. How childish of these alleged grown-ups to vote for someone who promised to overturn NAFTA, and did, who promised to stem illegal immigration, and did, who promised to get unemployment down, and did. So often when you scratch at claims of expertise, this is what you'll find lurking just beneath the surface, a smirking condescension that makes insight impossible and leads grown-ups to believe in a P-tape. That is the real lesson of the raid on Mar-a-Lago, at least for now until we get more information. The experts have nothing on you. Read everything for yourself question your biases, do your homework, and be skeptical of claims of expertise, and never forget to have compassion for the other side. So where are you, Robbie, on all of this? No, those are very wise words, Batya. I, <laughs> I agree with almost everything you said. I think, um, you know, on the question, though, of 
the the love of Trump himself. I guess I will not def- to defend Ben Rhodes. I would never do that. But <laughs> the preference for Trump among, versus, um, among the right when there is no alternative. Right. I understand. Of course, they prefer Trump. Trump is implementing the policies that that the new Republican Party, the new right wants implemented. So, of course, they would prefer him to what to, to Joe Biden, to Hillary Clinton. The issue will be, well, do they still prefer Trump to plausible alternatives like Ron DeSantis or whoever else is emerging and is clinging to Trump? I think it's becoming or it looks more like a cult of personality now as it endures, where it's clearly like harming the Republican Party's chances of enacting these policies in the future. As I mean, we're looking at some of these races, right? Arizona just went down the line for the hardcore, hardest hardcore Trump candidates, possibly to their detriment. It, they're much more likely to lose, I think, than the than the more typical Republican candidates. It's not, you know, it's not the most conservative state ever. It's it's a very down the middle state. So the question becomes, is there such a worship of Trump that it's actually harming the, the goals of the, these people? And that's why I, I see why you would say, well, it's some kind of cult of personality. Now, maybe that will will go away. Maybe, you know, Ron DeSantis will run and all those people will flock to DeSantis. And then you'll say, no, there isn't really a cult of personality. But that's I think that's where that that kind of framing comes from. It, do, it does seem to be a preference for Trump himself, the person, the individual, beyond all else, that I do find baffling at some times. Not given, of course, they support Trump over, over the left, over Democrats, but over other Republicans who would, who would do the same thing and seem to have fewer faults, like would not have boxes of, of unauthorized documents in there, even if you don't care, even if you say it's stupid and the FBI shouldn't go after him for it, it's still a self-inflicted wound to have done this, right? I mean, I, I, I guess, well, I'll just give you one example. My friend Jim, who's a bartender in his 60s, lives in New Jersey. You know, we used to talk endlessly about Trump. You know, he he supported his policies, but he always said to me, you know, his character always bothered him. You know, he would say yeah. to me, you know, a true leader rises above. That was a yeah. really... And then I was talking to him the other day about this raid on Mar-a-Lago, and he said to me, now I'm all in for him. And he said, just to stick it to them. And I think that that feeling that Trump represents in his messiness, he represents, um, you know, the average American's fear that he too could be targeted by these people for having made a mistake. DeSantis will never have that because he doesn't make mistakes, right? He's, He's not messy. And so in a way, I hear what you're saying. Well, he could get more push down the road policy-wise, but at the same time, there was something about Trump's, I just don't care about what anybody, you know, in the sort of elite spheres thinks, that actually gave him leeway. I mean, could you picture DeSantis waging a trade war with China? I can't. I have to say, you know, he's just too careful to take a step like that, and there's too much evidence on either side of whether it's actually going to be effective, whereas for Trump, it was like, oh, is this what the experts think is a bad idea? I'm going all in for it, and I think that there is something about that that, look, I don't think people vote against their interests. And I think that there we have gotten so used to saying, oh, you know, this one is better for your interest. That one is better for your interest. They know who's in their interests. And sometimes sticking it to the elites who destroyed their communities and destroyed their lives is very much in their interests. Well, I think we could really, really stick it to Team Blue by nominating someone <laughs> who's less likely to, to lose than Donald Trump. Just my, just my view of the matter. Uh, thank you so much, Batya. And I'll have my radar in just a minute. Looking forward. 
Robbie, what is on your radar? Well, we just reached a major milestone in a huge acknowledgement that most people have some form of protection from severe COVID-19 disease, either from vaccines or from prior infection. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention no longer recommend social distancing as a general strategy to slow the spread of the virus. That announcement was made late last week and is an important one. Finally, even our notoriously cautious health officials are essentially admitting that the pandemic is over. New guidelines from the CDC state that masks are only warranted in schools if the level of community spread is high. When the spread is at medium level, high-risk individuals should wear masks. When the spread is at a low level, masks are not recommended at all. At all, now at all COVID-19 community levels, low, medium, and high recommendations emphasize that staying up to date with vaccination, improving ventilation, testing people who are symptomatic and those who've been exposed, isolating infected persons, that all holds according to the CDC. But the new guidelines remove the need for individuals who were merely exposed to COVID-19 to isolate, although <laughs> who was still doing that, until they could produce a negative test. But now even the guidance says no more of that. Individuals who test positive for COVID-19, they should continue to isolate for five days. But if anyone was still waiting for official permission from the nation's top health officials to resume life as normal, well, here it is. By signaling that the universal masking and social distancing phase of the pandemic is now over for good, the CDC has conceded that the U.S.'s COVID-19 prevention strategy should now revolve around just protecting those who are at heightened risk, the immunocompromised, the elderly, etc. Perhaps most importantly, schools and areas of the country where community spread is low or medium, they do not need to require general mask wearing. This latest guidance from the CDC should give our students, parents, and educators the confidence they need to head back to school this year with a sense of joy and optimism. That's according to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, who said that in a statement. Now, Washington, D.C. schools, they should take note because the level of community spread in the nation's capital, where I live, it's currently low. Now, I've been in touch with parents at some of the public charter schools in D.C., and these schools have had some of the strictest COVID policies of anywhere in the country, routinely recommending policies that are more stringent than what the CDC itself recommends. In one of these schools, which teaches kindergarten through fifth grade, they were masked outdoors until this April. They wore them during sports. Outdoor track was masked, one parent told me. Another one of these schools took masking so seriously that it recommended that students, quote, be careful when taking off their mask and wash their hands after removing it. Store the mask out of anyone's reach. Use a clean mask if someone touches yours, the one you're currently wearing. It's a mask, not an item of religious significance. These policies never made any sense to begin with, but now it's really, 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 really time to end them. Of course, the parents I've talked to say the schools, uh, these schools in question, they have no intention of changing course, even though the CDC now says we don't need to mask in schools if community spread is low. What happened to following the science and doing what the experts say is best? Throughout the pandemic, municipalities controlled by Team Blue, by Democrats, have claimed that they will default to whatever COVID policies and strategies that are enlightened leaders in the CDC, the FDA, and the Biden White House deem is best. They ridiculed people who didn't listen as it was against, if it was against the science. 
Team Blue thought leaders like Dr. Fauci played into this view, actively purporting to personify moral virtue in the face of the pandemic. Remember when Fauci said that to disagree with him was to disagree with science itself? Watch. It's very dangerous, Chuck, because a lot of what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Because all of the things that I have spoken about consistently from the very beginning have been fundamentally based on science. Sometimes those things were inconvenient truths for people, and there was pushback against me. So if you are trying to you know, get at me as a public health official and a scientist, you're really attacking not only Dr. Anthony Fauci, you're attacking science. And anybody that looks at what's going on clearly sees that. You have to be asleep not to see that. That is what's going on. Science and the truth are being attacked. Will schools that continue to force students to wear masks be attacked as anti-science, even though they now are out of step with CDC guidelines? I doubt it. Or does this only ever work one way? Democrats get a pass, their critics do not. Is that it? Of course it is. Now that's what we're being that's what we've become used to. Remember that the first and basically only general exception to social distancing guidelines was one granted early in the pandemic for one specific group, Black Lives Matters protesters. In the wake of George Floyd, when anti-racism protesters flooded the streets, public health officials said, that's fine. Recall that these were the same public health officials whose recommendations led to the closing of public beaches and parks. It was shameless then, shameless now. So, Bacha, I celebrate the end, official end of social distancing. We're no longer, and of course the joke is no one is still doing this, right? Because only the most, like, ardent, like, you know, Dr. Fauci is the science kind of believing person in, you know, locked down in in miserable blue cities. Everyone else is basically going back to life as normal. It has been for some, you know, more than a year for some people. So it doesn't really matter. But even on paper now, if you're still you know, masking perpetually indoors in areas where community spread is low, you are no longer doing what the CDC recommends. And all these officials who said, you know what, we just do what the CDC tells us to do. So you know, take it up with them, which is an interesting kind of deflection, because then when we talked to you and I, when we interviewed Fauci, we said, well, you know, what, what about these? Do you regret any of these policies? And he's like, oh, I didn't force them on anyone. I, these were just recommendations. So no one wants to be responsible for uh, forcing them on the American people. But now, if you're just following the recommendations, they no longer recommend that. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to see which officials back down. I'm betting, and so far in, in, uh, in, in D.C., in the, the, school, the schools I've, I have some uh, research, some insight into their practices, seems like they're sticking with the masks. Yeah, it was so interesting when we got to interview Dr. Fauci, we at, we got to ask him about six questions and each of our questions was a different permutation of, do you regret this? Do you regret that? Would you have done this differently? Would you have done that that differently? Which is another way of approaching a scientist and saying, you know, from a scientific point of view, did you make any errors? You know, can you analyze from an objective point of view the decisions you made? And he, he was incapable of admitting to any errors, not a single one. And I think that that is so interesting because what we had with the pandemic was a perfect scientific experiment, right? Half the nation said, we're going to do minimum, you know, after the initial, you know, two 
two months or whatever. We're going to do minimal closing down of the economy, no masking, no distancing. We're going to, you know, protect the vulnerable and uh, but that's on them. And otherwise, you know, just, you know, try to manage this as an endemic from from three months in. Right. That was the Republican side. And then from the liberal side, we had no we're going to do maximum shutdowns, maximum policing, maximum enforcement, maximum mandates, all the stuff you and I think is terrible. And it was a perfect scientific experiment, right, because you could see which one worked and lo and behold the red states got it right lo and behold the children that were not forced to mask that were not forced to quarantine in florida there was not a higher incidence of mortality due to COVID than in places like new york where they were forced to do all this horrible things that you know it just awful 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 results for children so you know in in a sense to me the science right really was with team red even as team blue continues to you know cover itself in the mantle of the quote-unquote science and just the last point i'll make is um, the CDC is continues to lead from behind, right? You know, removing all of these restrictions, it's doing this because the American people and mass decided a long time ago, we're not doing this anymore, just like you said in your radar, right? So what they're doing now is like ratifying what the, um, the, the wisdom of the American people that refused the authority of this quote unquote scientific community that as, as you have rightly pointed out and righteously over and over, Robbie, has simply just beclowned itself. Um, great radar. Yeah, thank you. And, and right, I think the answer to that question, you're right, that natural experiment we have, I was like to point out what happened in both cases, basically everyone got COVID, right? You can find, you can look, you can find, yes, if you really look at the data, you can find, you know, some better outcomes here, some worse outcomes here. Some of them have to do with climate. Some of them have to do with density. Some have to do with various mm-hmm. other things. Maybe, you know, maybe you can point out to here's a policy that worked a little bit better. This place had a, a little bit better of outcome, but this is true even outside the U.S. You can look at Europe. You can look at the only places that have had dramatically better COVID in terms of the actual disease are, are places that lock down far harder than anyone in sort of Western civilization was willing to do, even including like very blue states who, who you know, pursuing the like the, co- the COVID zero strategy or like quarant- forcibly quarantining people, all that stuff. No one here, because, because we, have, we have a constitution and bill of rights, was, was willing to do that. I think for good reason. Their, their, their better COVID um, outcomes have come at the cost of massive, unconscionable authoritarianism. And by the way, they're still having to do those things, <laughs> maybe forever, because COVID is still going to exist. So mm-hmm. you could compare those and say, yeah, there was a dramatic difference. But for everybody else, you know what? The disease, Roe's going to do what Roe's going to do. The disease spread. It was terrible. We wish it hadn't happened. But there was a lot of cost to these interventions. And it, it's, I think it's, it's hard to see massive, massive differences, especially with the latter, the latter variants. They, just, you know, they, they tear through. It's terrible. Everybody gets it, you know, including your, from your COVID deniers to your you know, twice-vaccinated four times boosted mask wearing type people. Maybe maybe small differences in outcome, but certainly not massive ones if you look at the data. So that's just that's just where we are. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will just say there were a few people um, on Twitter who are, you know, uh, at higher risk for COVID sort of slamming the CDC for daring to put them at risk. Um, and I just want to say to people like that, do you understand what happens to an autistic child when you force mm. them to wear a mask? A child who's trying to learn how to talk, who's trying to learn how to articula- articulate words, the, the, the family of a disabled child, seeing them 
backsliding on 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 skills that they had managed to so painstakingly acquire mm. and that is what happened that's what ha- what's happening here we have to get rid of this stuff it's just so deplorable and the idea that adults would be wishing to impose this on children for their own sake, for their own comfort. It really makes me angry, Robbie. Mm, makes me angry too. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. A year ago, President Biden pulled American troops out of Afghanistan, effectively ending a war that had raged on for 20 years. The tumultuous exit included American embassy personnel scrambling to leave war-torn country, and hundreds of thousands of Afghanistani citizens were left trying to leave, fearing that the Taliban was about to take over. Fast forward, and that fear of Taliban rule is very much a reality. Here is what retired Army General Jack Keane had to say about what many have called a botched exit plan. The fact is, Afghanistan is a sanctuary for terrorism. The very reason we went there, the very reason we stayed there for 20 years to ensure that terrorists did not rise again to attack the American people, and we're right back where we started. House Republicans are due to release their report on the chaotic departure, exposing the Biden administration's potential failure to prepare for leaving Afghanistan. Here to discuss further is co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Trita Parsi, and former Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Let's start with you, Lieutenant Colonel. What went wrong here? Well, look, what went wrong was that our 20-year military mission there was a complete and utter disaster almost from the outset. So what we saw transpire when Biden decided to get us out of there uh, was the rot that had built up over all of those years coming to full fruition with, with the Afghan government being fatally corrupt with the Afghan military never being trained uh, up to a level where they could actually provide their own security amidst all the lies from our senior government officials, senior military officials, to the contrary, telling us all along that this was working, that that the, the government was getting better, that the military was taking charge. All of those things were always fiction, which I saw on the ground during my two combat deployments there. And, you know, in, in General Keene's comment now that, you know, we're right back where we started from and like we should have stayed there forever is just absurd. Because, look, this is something I think is really critical to point out. As I personally observed, especially in the 2010-2011 time frame, the idea that our uh, troops on the ground there were preventing anything, were stopping the, the uh, t- uh, rise of any terrorists uh, on the ground in Afghanistan is, is absurd. Because when there was 140,000 U.S. and NATO troops there, there were vast tracts of the country that were completely outside of our, of our operational control or even influence. The idea that 2,500 at the end, if we had perpetuated that somehow would have kept us safe is absolutely refuted by the facts on the ground. And, and I stand in strong uh, contradiction to that to that claim. And it's not as if all along the, the generals, the military advisors, the administration was saying, look, we just have to keep troops there forever because it's that important to prevent terrorism. Like, no one said that. They said, no, we're building a stable country. We are training a, a government to take over for us eventually. So it sounds like now they're almost acknowledging that that was just a lie. No, no, no. We, the plan was we were going to have to stay there uh, forever, which, which is not what we were sold on uh, whatsoever, is it, Dr. Parsi? 
you're quite right. They, they were lying and they're lying now. And we know that from the, uh, the papers that the Washington Post released that for many, many years, they knew themselves. We were not turning a corner. We were not making progress. This was not leading us anywhere. But we were staying in order to keep up the illusion that things were under control. And, and Danny is absolutely right. What we're seeing when the withdrawal eventually happened was the rot that had been building up for 20 years. In my view, the mistake from the very outset was to go in instead of just trying to target Al-Qaeda, punish them for their attacks on the United States. We decided to do something much, much bigger, which was to rebuild that country, turn it into a democracy, all of these different things. Once the mission changed that, we set ourselves up for failure. Not because the intentions necessarily were bad, but because we're not equipped to do something like this. And we should have learned that by now. And it seems like we still have it. So I have a question for both of you then. Uh, I mean, I think we're all in agreement about the rot that was there and the, you know, the, 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 the failed mission and the mistaken mission of nation building and how that was always you know, being sold to us as a lie. But so my question would be, well, then how should we have ended it? How could we have withdrawn in a better way, ended this facade in a way that would have um, had fewer casualties that would have resulted or, or would that have been impossible? Dr. Parsi, let's start with you. I think it's first important to recognize that we cannot have a 20-year failed occupation and then expect that we're going to have an amazingly successful, friction-free, no problems, no crisis type of withdrawal. That's just unrealistic. So mm -hmm. either way, we would have done it. There would have been challenges and problems. I'm sure there could have been less. Had, for instance, there been more time, uh, the administration perhaps could have prepared for it better. But I think it's also clear that there were deep divisions within the administration. Uh, they were given a deadline uh, coming in and, and they shifted it back six months, but they knew they couldn't shift it further than that because if they did, the Taliban would see that as a violation of the Doha agreement, that it was an attempt to just essentially uh, run out the clock and, and, and permanently stay. And we would have had an escalation of the military confrontation between the Taliban and the United States. So the time frame was such that there was a lot of pressure on the administration. I'm sure there are things that could have been done better, but I'm a little bit astonished that there is more focus on how the withdrawal didn't go as well, rather than the focus on what on earth went right in the 20 years of occupation. Mm. That yep. failure of that occupation for 20 years deserves mm -hmm. far more attention. What, what's your view, Lieutenant Colonel? Yeah, look, there's two things. Number one is, I guess, to answer the first part of your question there, uh, as I've argued many times, I think Trita has as well, uh, look, we should have gotten out maybe by the summer of 2002, because that time there was no Taliban. They were completely eradicated, and we could have easily left at that time because there was no enemy force to leave behind or to worry about, and the Afghan people could have come up with whatever government they wanted to on their own, on their own time frame. Everything could have been perfectly fine with that, and they would have done it, whatever they did, because that was up to them. They have to live with the results. But we didn't. And so now everything happened after that. Now, the other the one thing that could have made this somewhat less chaotic is if uh, President Biden had stayed with the original timeline that the Doha agreement provided. If we had gotten out by the 31st of May, which was the original timeline, the Taliban wouldn't have been hadn't come to the point where they did yet. They were they were ready to overcome everything. Actually, we could have gotten out and there would still have existed to some degree, at least an Afghan government and an Afghan military, because the Taliban simply wasn't ready to to overtake everything. Those extra six months 
gave the Taliban everything that they needed to be able to move in so that they basically walked in with us before we even left. But I just cannot more strongly reiterate what Trita just said is that the rot of 20 years is what deserves all of the focus here, not how it, the very last minute of how it ended, because that is the, the real tr uh, point that we need to make sure we get so we don't repeat this avoidable mistake in the future. Well, and that's a, a good point, Can Lieutenant Colonel. Go, go ahead, Dr. Percy. I think Dan is absolutely right. And I think what this shows, particularly the first part of his answer, is that we don't have the discipline to handle success very well. The, the Taliban were quickly defeated uh, in the beginning stages of that war. Instead mm -hmm. of declaring victory and moving on, we aggrandized our objectives. We were essentially uh, struck by hubris about how fast it had gone. And we now decided that we're so good and we're so strong. So just going to remake that entire country and make it look like a Middle Eastern version of Switzerland. If we just had the discipline of sticking to the plan, sticking to our objectives and move on, rather than allowing quick successes to get to our head, we would have been in a very different situation today. And so would the Afghan people. Lieutenant Colonel, where do we go from here, given that we do have a Taliban controlled Afghanistan? You know, what should we expect from them and how should the U.S. handle this relationship moving forward? Look, it's it's a mess. But look, we deal with all kinds of governments all over the world we don't like. But we can't just, quote, punish the Taliban uh, because they beat us in this war at the expense of 23 million Afghan people. I mean, we spent 20 years allegedly saying that we care about the people and we want to help them and we want to give them freedom and security and all this. Well, now that there's one government in Afghanistan and we're doing everything we can to prevent them from succeeding, somehow the thinking that's going to help our, our geopolitical uh, situation in the world or our security or something, all it's doing is harming these Afghan people who depend on that money and, and this government so that they can continue to live. They can have an economy. They can have a job. We need to say we need to separate uh, anything about security with just standard. Just we have to deal with people as they are, whether we like the government or not. It's not going anywhere. So let's just say. We're going to deal with the, just like we do with other uh, totalitarian governments around the world. We don't like them. We, we, you know, we keep our security safe from them. And that's the same with Taliban, just like we did when we took out al-Zawahiri, for example. That was a direct threat to the United States that was in Afghanistan. We took him out, but like we can do in many other places. But we still can't punish the people of Afghanistan mm. because we don't like their government. Mm. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis and Dr. Trita Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Albert Bourla is the CEO of Pfizer, and he just announced on Twitter that he has COVID. He says, I would like to let you know that I've tested positive for COVID-19. I am thankful to have received four doses of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, and I am feeling well while experiencing very mild symptoms. I am isolating and have started a course of Paxlovid. I just checked his Wikipedia page, Bacha. He's 60 years old. Um, lots of interesting information about him, including <laughs> in personal life, he has made political contributions to both Republicans and Democrats, in particular to those who oppose controls on prescription drug prices in the United States. What a guy. <laughs> 
Right. I mean, it speaks more to our political, the corruption of our political party, that there are people like that in both parties, right? Yes. That's definitely not a single party uh, um, yeah. issue. You know, he's 60. This guy is not at like a high risk, although, you know, so the argument they would make is that the more doses you, you've gotten, right, it won't prevent the spread, which they told us it would, but it won't. It won't prevent you from getting it, but the symptoms will be milder. So, of course, you know, God bless him. I hope that his symptoms remain mild and that he doesn't get sicker. But, you know, of course, there's something a little bit, you know, you understand why people are sort of making fun of this. Like, right. what did the four doses get you if you're still going to get it? And right? I, I hope he doesn't experience what both Biden and yeah. Fauci experienced when they got COVID and they took Paxlovid, which was Paxlovid rebound. It is real. It happens to people. I don't believe that it's only whatever small, trivial, insignificant figure they gave. If both Biden and Fauci experienced that, it's, it's got to be way more people. So I hope he doesn't have that where, where you uh, and maybe someone has suggested to me a, a colleague of mine, a reason that maybe if you take Paxlovid too early before your body develops antibodies at all to COVID, it stops that from happening. And then when you get through them, when you get through the Paxlovid course, because you never had those antibodies, it just starts again until you get those antibodies. I mean, there's something to say for it. Like, there's no way around this but through it to some degree. Like, we can't, we wish it were the case. I wish the vaccines acted like vaccines for other diseases, where if you get it, you have, you know, substantially, dramatically reduced likelihood of contracting the disease, reduced almost to zero or, to, or actually to zero in some cases. Here we know, I mean, we know that's not happening. I, the, the term breakthrough infection doesn't even really exist anymore for COVID right. because just like everyone had one. Exactly. Um, I think I, we've had guests on the show who've estimated, I, I don't know what you think the estimate is, 70, 80, 90% of people in the US have had an infection by now. If, if you've not had COVID at all, you are one of a dwindling minority of people. Um, and it doesn't matter how many times you've been vaccinated, doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, to, to a large extent, it matters a little bit, I guess, but to a large extent, doesn't matter how careful you are. Um, it just, it, you know, it matters when the, when the waves come through. So it's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely feel so mind divided about it. On the one hand, I do think that the vaccine probably saved a lot of lives, a lot of elderly yeah. people's lives. But on the other hand, the way they went about it, um, you know, um, uh, negotiating such that people who do experience side effects, who do experience, um, you know, drastic bad effects from the vaccines cannot um, sue Pfizer, cannot sue Moderna. I mean, that really was, I think, super sketchy and probably led to why a lot of people had concerns about taking the vaccine in the first place. So it's very, very sort of complicated. Um, of mm -hmm. course, we have to give President Trump credit for Operation Warp Speed, which probably saved millions of lives um, and got grandparents to hold their grandchildren again much sooner than otherwise would have happened. But it's definitely a mixed bag and certainly mocking people, alienating people, firing people for not wanting to take a vaccine was right. completely inappropriate and totally counterproductive. Well, it's like Dr. Rand Paul said uh, when I interviewed him uh, one time, uh, maybe it wasn't even on the show, it might have been for a magazine piece I did. He said, look, if you're elderly or at high risk and you've and you've not you don't have you take a test you don't have antibodies you've not had covid yet i would argue that getting a vaccine is probably a good choice for you or you should talk with your doctor about it i think i could make that case to someone but the kind of blanket approach that everyone it, that it, not only should everyone get it it's got to be required for vast swaths of workers in the country that's what the biden administration attempted to do um after for, which was 
a while because at first Biden said that he, we couldn't have a national mask mandate. And I'm like, yeah, of course, that would be a vast, you know, ex- uh, uh, overextension of federal yeah. authority. But then they did a, they did they did an arguably more extensive <laughs> vaccine mandate. Even though even though I personally find masks more uh, more of a burden than uh, than getting vaccinated. I I got vaccinated willingly. I don't wear I virtually never worn a mask willingly. Uh, most people I understand why they would find I mean, I, whoever many people why they would uh, find being you know forced to inject something into their body more intrusive than the mask requirement. So how could it be if they thought they didn't have the authority to do that that they could require you know all these workers without any new law without any of that kind of thing they just declared it and then it actually was struck down i I think reasonably and wisely by uh by by the supreme court but you know you have you have uh you have health company pharmaceutical companies and their lobbyists who want to make these things mandatory because it's good for their bottom line and look and i'm i don't you know i don't want to knock these companies you know, to the to the ends of time, I, it, it is a good thing that they invented um, these these uh, um, treatments and these vaccines for people for whom they help. And there are a lot of people for whom they help. But the strategy of requiring it was just so short sighted and uh, and, and so so un undictated by the science. And I would say, Robbie, un-American. And I think mm-hmm. that the, the moral majority um, was definitely behind repudiating any kind of vaccine mandate, so much so that um, when Democrats were trying to, um, um, p- to to get Kansas voters to vote against restrictions on abortion, they were told not to use the messaging, my body, my choice, when it comes to abortion, because that had been so thoroughly co-opted by the anti-mandate um, camp, which had the moral authority, I think, to really to really drive policy. Yeah, no, absolutely. My body, my choice. Remember that? <laughs> Can't use Amen. that one anymore. Can't use that one anymore. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we, we wish Pfizer CEOs a speedy recovery, yeah. obviously, yeah. Uh, as everyone else uh, who has the disease as well. And uh, you know, probably he will be absolutely fine. Uh, we assume based on his, uh, you know, you don't, can't assume it, but based on his demographics, et cetera, um, it, you know, this is really, thankfully, a much, 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 much less fatal disease than it was at the beginning when it was, you know, so scary and so yeah. society warping. So yeah. we're glad we're not in that place anymore. And And we will have more rising right after this. Co-chair of the Forward Party, Andrew Yang, found himself cornered by CNN's Jim Acosta during an appearance on CNN this weekend. Let's take a look. On both sides, but you're going to have to come up with policy really positions. Really negative results, right? We but just Andrew, need a better system. yeah, but Andrew, you're going to have to have policy uh, positions at some point. How does the Forward Party feel about Roe versus Wade? Should it have been overturned? Well, I personally uh, think that women's reproductive rights are fundamental human rights. But the forward party has uh, not left or right, but forward stance on even the most divisive and contentious issues. Well, what does that mean? Don't you have to take a position on something? You Don't you have to take a position of- on something? You can't just say, well, I, you well, know, this is I- a hot button issue, so I'm not going to take a position on you. You know, if you want to run the country, you're going to have to make some hard decisions, Andrew. Uh, again, the forward party is about that common sense consensus majority view, which is very clear on abortion. It's clear what about on guns. What guns. about assault it's clear weapons? On climate change. It's actually clear on just about every issue under the sun. Should 18 year olds be able to buy AR-15s? Of should, because of the nature of our system. Should 18 year olds be able to buy AR-15s? 
again, the common sense consensus majority is that there should be some uh, rules around background checks and access to, to firearms. But we're not getting any of these things, Jim, because the two party system does not need to deliver. But it doesn't sound like you're taking any hard positions. It sounds like you're trade power. It sounds like you're you're sort of a fill in the blank party. You're, you know, if if somebody uh, wants a, a, a party with no clear policy positions, you're it. Joining us now with her reaction is host of Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro. Teslin, great to have you back on Rising. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So I guess a lot of people were kind of knocking Yang for this clip. Uh, let me, I guess, defend him, and then you can respond. I thought his answers were just fine. Uh, he actually did answer some of those questions. He said, yeah, there would be, should, we should have some gun restrictions. He was suggesting there should be some abortion restrictions, and that the, you know, the majority of Americans are somewhere in the middle on many of these policies, and he wasn't going to give Jim Acosta the kind of extreme left or right take, obviously Acosta wanting you know, the extreme left take, but or, or him to give an extreme right take for then Acosta to attack. So I understood exactly what Yang was saying, but maybe you have a different view. Yeah, that's great. Maybe he should watch this and take a few pointers because the bottom line is Yang did not do the good thing. And that's the bottom line is he moved the forward party five steps back. Let's just go ahead and be honest. I know the blue cap ministry on Twitter will get upset when I say this, uh, but your leader <laughs> failed. The bottom line, he ran for president and was not prepared for prime time. He did uh, say that they had some parties, but he uh, had some positions, but he just simply did not articulate that well. Uh, Andrew Yang has been talking about the math, the math, the math, but the math was not mathing. And it was clear uh, that he was not prepared uh, to articulate those messages. Again, he has some positions, I'm sure, but in order to come out on national TV and to say that the forward party is about moving us forward, he needs to be able to move a message forward. And he just simply just did not do it. And I know folks will make excuses for him, but if you want your leader uh, to be able to bring people over to the forward party, you have to be able to take a position and take a stand. We are at a place in time where we have to draw the line and then we have to do what I call push the line. And he simply did not do that. And so if they really want to move forward, they're going to have to be honest with Andrew Yang and tell him he's going to have to do uh, a better job. Well, but and I, I, I thought people are people are desperate for a third party. The nerve of right. them to not be prepared. Right. Well, and I thought that was the message. We want to the two party system is the problem. Uh, I want it sounds like you want so many of us want a viable third party, whether that's the forward party or another party, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, etc. Um, there has to be some amount of unity among disaffected people uh, if we're going to cha reform the system to, to get around the two party. So rather than, you know, pick, uh, take, adapt or adopt policy positions on divisive policy questions that could alienate people, um, let's just go with things that most people agree on and then come together to change the two party system is what I, I thought he was saying. But he but, didn't even articulate that. I mean, in order to have a viable oh. party, the key word is viable. Uh, he didn't articulate any of the things that you just said. Again, maybe he should watch this or attend one of my trainings on media, on how to do the media. He didn't articulate any of those things that you just mentioned. Great job trying to throw him an alley loop, but the bottom line is he didn't articulate it. And it was embarrassing. I was third party, uh, I was third party embarrassed, what they call. So I just started a third party, it's called third party embarrassment, watching that. Uh, he has to be able to articulate that message. That's just the bottom line. And you're going to have to take some type of position. He would articulate is that there's a problem. We get it that there's a problem. Congrats. Now, what is the solution? 
How is somebody supposed to align with you when you can't articulate what the forward party is about other than repeating it over and over like a robot saying that the two-party system is a problem? We got that, Yang. Congrats, congrats. You got that. Now, what is the solution? He didn't articulate that. So, Teslin, tell us, so so show us how he should have done it. How would you have answered Jim Acosta's questions on abortion, on guns, from that third-party point of view? Show us how he should have done it. What should he have said? Well, well, he made the point that there's a consensus. He kept repeating over mm-hmm. and over, there's a consensus. So articulate what that consensus is. What is that consensus? Mm-hmm. Is he able to bring in the data to be able to say, because it's not about, he talked about his personal view, but you're not representing your personal view. Now, this is where I would normally charge you, Andrew Yang, but I'm going to give it, I'm going to give you this game for free. Instead of talking about how you feel, talk about the third party. Has he taken any polls? Does he know what the party feels? Or is this just another fundraising grift? Because that's the energy that people will will get if he's not articulating it. If he has taken a poll within the forward party and say, hey, 60% of forward party uh, members believe that reproductive rights should uh, be left up to women. 60% of, of folks believe in gun issues. Talk about that consistence, uh, consensus. He didn't articulate that with real number and data. Remember, it was Andrew Yang that talked about the math, mathing. Where was the algebra? Where was the geometry? Where was the, the plus, the minus, the subtraction? He did none of that. He just mm-hmm. talked in circles and he should be more prepared. It wasn't like he was up against the toughest interviewer in the world. I go on Fox News all the time, <laughs> the lion's den, please. It was CNN, it was softball, anything. <laughs> well, he was up against someone who is, you know, very hot, who is very much in a two-party duopoly, left and right kind of thinking, who, do, you know, who doesn't understand third-party brain and is, is, you know, frankly, I'm not sure at Andrew all times even trying to. Andrew doesn't understand either. Andrew doesn't understand third-party brain either. Really? That's, that's, that's harsh. I mean, that's harsh. Let's roll the clip. I mean, well, you know, let's roll the clip. The clip shows what it is. You have to be prepared for prime time. That's just the bottom line. You have to be prepared for live television. I've done over a hundred hits a year. I don't go on Fox News, which I consider the lion's den uh, with my left wing views without being prepared. So yeah, I'm harsh. I'm a military veteran. It is what it is. I own a communications firm. He should be better prepared. He ran for president of the United States. Acosta is not the tough, hard nosed interviewer you know, that we're pretending that he is. He should have been able to articulate what the third, what the forward party was about. Can I ask you something? Um, uh, Well, first of all, thank you so much for your service. Um, It sounds like um, um, underlying what you're saying, and this may be my own wishful thinking from where I'm coming from, but it seems to me what you're saying is that underlying a third party proposition, there is a kind of populism insofar as what you're saying is is he answered what he believes and that is irrelevant the point of the third party is to take the temperature of the people in the third party the people who feel unrepresented the american people who feel that both parties um, have abandoned them am i understanding that correctly yes and also understanding that you two just explained what he did not It doesn't matter if he was up there selling peanut butter jelly sandwiches. I'm talking about from a communication standpoint, he did not articulate the message. So there's one thing to have a good good third party, a forward party option. I think it's great. A lot of folks are excited about it. My point is he did not articulate that well. You have two minutes. You remember what Eminem said? You only got one shot. He had two (laughs) minutes to articulate that and he failed. So I'm simply talking about from a communication standpoint, he did not articulate it well. 
When I'm on national TV live, I have a minute and 20 seconds to be able to get my message out. That means I have to respond, I have to rebut, and I have to come and drop the message that I came to give regardless of what they asked me. He failed from a communication standpoint. I'm not uh, uh, criticizing the fact that there should be a third party. I'm not criticizing the fact that there should be some type of disruption in the two-party system. I am criticizing he did not deliver the message the way my, he should have and he should be more prepared he, he was it was amateur night at the apollo my um my uh issue with the, the 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 problem for third parties i think is not really one necessarily of communications or having bad ideas i think a lot of them have good ideas the structural hurdles are the obstacles are so insurmountable in my view for a third party uh, uh, to emerge i wonder if you share that view because and for my mind then that that implies that third parties should be laser focused on structural reform to the system to to getting you know uh, um, uh, a different of uh, different voting system uh, you know where if you get a certain number of votes you have that amount of rep uh, representation not just the winner take all that kind of thing is what third parties need you know rather than to really take really precise or perfect or better calibrated stances on issues or, or communicate them more effectively. Obviously, that's important. But if, if you had perfect communication, you would still have limited success for third parties, given the actual, the actual structures that exist. Well, I don't know, because that wasn't perfect communication. It was dismal at best. Uh, the, the bottom line is, it doesn't matter what he's pushing. You have to be able to articulate that. And just because someone's independent, I am independent. I still have views. I still have positions. He said over and over that he was about the consensus of the majority of the American people. He should be able to articulate that. You just can't be in a party and say, hey, we just know we don't like the, the, uh, the, the two-party system. Okay, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Create a solution. Or he could simply just do like many people do and create a pack and be about advocating uh, us all getting along and healing America, whatever it is that he's trying to do. But to actually say that there is a third party option, just like the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, any other option, you're going to have to be a big boy enough to make some decisions on some things you agree with and some things you do not. And that is how he got caught in the in the argument, because, number one, it doesn't sound like he knows or if he does know, he was not able to articulate that. You guys have done a better job. Maybe he should hire you. You've done a better job of articulating what he was trying to say. But trying to say it and saying it are two different things, particularly on national TV. Hmm. Well, we can have wildly different reactions to uh, this. I, I thought he did fine. I saw exactly what he was going for. But we like to air uh, different and dissenting views. See, going for it and doing it are two different things. That's kind of what, you okay. know, oh, yeah, really tried to make the basket. But you didn't. You hit a brick. That's the <laughs> Figaro, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll have more rising right after this. On Friday, author Salman Rushdie was attacked at a speaking event in New York by a man who stormed the stage and stabbed Rushdie in the neck. Reports say a 24-year-old New Jersey man stabbed Rushdie 10 times. The 75-year-old author was airlifted to a hospital following the attack and is now 
on the road to recovery. And though he's headed in the right direction, his agent says he could lose an eye in the recovery process. Iran denied any link with the attacker, but blamed Rushdie for, quote, insulting Islam in the novel The Satanic Verses. Iran said, quote, in this attack, we do not consider anyone other than Salman Rushdie and his supporters worthy of blame and even mm. condemnation. Just disgusting. Terrible. Joining us now to weigh in is associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf. Liz, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, you know, this was always something that could happen. Uh, Salman Rushdie has been under fatwa for insulting Islam. His book, The Satanic Verses, um, I don't even know how many years ago that was now. It was, it was what, it was in the 90s? It was uh, prior to that? I, I don't remember. It's, it's been forever. He has been under threat of, uh, of, of attack. It's been 30 years, our producers are telling us, so about, about right. Um, this could always happen, and it it just did. Uh, he got attacked, and I, I, you know, I had to note all the. I'm just, you know, seeing on Twitter all the kind of news headlines being like, well, you know, we, there's no motive yet in the attack. We don't know. I think we know. Do 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 we know, Liz? Do we maybe have any kind of inclination in why this happened? Yeah, I think we saw this in a lot of the New York Times coverage of this case. A lot of stuff about how we don't know the motive. I mean, look, in 1989, a fatwa was placed by Ayatollah Khomeini on Rushdie's head. That's a bounty of $2.5 million that in subsequent years was actually upped to a higher dollar amount. Uh, although Rushdie was initially placed under police protection in the UK uh, and was able to stay safe, many of the people involved in the book's publication were not so lucky. So a Japanese translator of the book was brutally killed uh, in the years that followed, I believe in 1991. An Italian translator was stabbed and thankfully did not succumb to his injuries. And then a Turkish translator was attacked by an arsonist while praying. And although he survived, 37 people who he was praying with did not survive. This fatwa has already had a really staggering, astonishing death toll. And I think it's a little bit dense and absurd for us to pretend that this is in some way disconnected from that. When Rushdie is somebody who, because of his depiction of Islam in a book about magical realism, uh, you know, where a schizophrenic character is basically envisioning this like funhouse mirror alternative, uh, you know, portrayal creation story of Islam, you know, it was considered blasphemous by the Iranian government, and the book was actually banned by by tons of other governments, like the Indian government. But for us to pretend like this controversial history of this novel is in some way disconnected from the Russia attack is crazy. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm not one to compare between things like, you know, the government of Iran putting a literal fatwa on someone and cancel culture in America. I always sort of try to keep those things apart mm -hmm. because, you know, one is very, very violent and the other is sort of, um, you know, in its insistence that, you know, language is violent, is less sort of physically violent. However, there is one thing that I think is really important to point out. Can either of you imagine the satanic verses being published today in the climate that is right now happening in the book publishing world, the terror of woke mobs. Um, I mean, nothing gets published that could even potentially um, offend anybody, right? And to me, um, 
that is such a horrible thing to I mean I cannot imagine that book getting published today getting green, greenlit today can you just imagine the outrage on Twitter by the supposed left right that was once the vanguard of, of of free speech so to me there is a sort of continuum here to where we are making we are making fatwas like that um, you know Iran doesn't even need to issue them anymore because we're doing their dirty work here by censoring our writers D does that make sense I th yeah, I think that's an interesting point. It's difficult for me to fully assess that, but I would point to the rise of sensitivity readers, for example. This really bizarre phenomenon where so many publishing houses will now employ somebody to read a fiction book where maybe maybe an author is depicting the experiences of a, a tattooed woman uh, living in Brooklyn, you know, the experiences <laughs> of somebody like me. So they would, they would employ Liz Wolf to give this book a read to see whether it's appropriately sensitive and, and true to my experience. But like this is a thing that you know, Kat Rosenfield has documented for reason pretty extensively in, in a recent feature. It's a really disturbing phenomenon. And although these publishing houses are well within their rights to decide uh, how they want to do quality control for the books that they're publishing, it's concerning for them to be so obsessed, almost obsessed with this idea that the book has to either be by an author who has a certain experience in order to depict uh, a certain type of uh, situation or that it has to go through rounds and rounds of sensitivity readers for edits, uh, honestly, to ensure that it's maximally woke in many cases. Well, J.K. Rowling has commented on this matter saying, quote, feeling very sick right now, let him be okay. To which one Twitter user wrote, uh. don't worry, you are next. J.K. Rowling then asked Twitter for support on the issue, let her fans know that she did get the police involved. You know, obviously someone who's faced um, just unrelentingly harsh criticism for the comments she's made, the, the kind of stance she's taken on women's issues, on transgender issues. And I really agree with you, Bacha. We don't want to draw a false equivalency here. You know, c cancel culture is not remotely the same thing as people being physically, violently attacked because of the fatwa, you know, that kind of thing. They, and also they've been after Rushdie, uh, the, the sort of Islamic extremist threat to Rushdie's life has been a factor for so long. It, it predates the kind of modern, recent cancel culture, sensitivity kind of regime. And I, I think that's really important to note. But I, I do take your point, And you know, we do have to point out how free speech is no longer a sacrosanct principle on the left among progressives. It is something that many progressive writers, thinkers, commentators, activists on college campuses, et cetera, talk about as, uh, as now a right-wing value, as something they don't practice because free speech allows for harm. Um, I, I tweeted some survey I, I saw, I mean, you've seen so many of these surveys of the number of college students or liberal young people, progressive young people, who will say that it is, in some cases, permissible to fight offensive speech with violence or with, with physical force. So we can't, I, I think we shouldn't ignore those trends or, and, and, and we should be worried about those trends, um, even if you know, we're talking, we want to be clear that we're talking about a, a different thing that does absolutely predate that and is you know, much worse, a much more obvious, stark, appalling example of, uh, of violence and you know, not one coming from you know, oversensitive liberals, but from Islamic extremism, which has been this long running threat to uh, free speech and et cetera. Well, there are interesting uh, edge cases in the realm of cancel culture where you see college students embracing this idea that words equal violence. And I think one of the most prominent examples that we saw of this was in 2017, 
when Charles Murray was attacked on Middlebury College's campus. Charles Murray is obviously a very controversial writer and researcher who has long been fascinated by uh, class differences and class stratification in America. And he's done a lot of uh, interesting research attempting to link uh, IQ and intelligence differences to class and then also noting possible racial correlations uh, in IQ differences. He, he's a very controversial thinker and writer, but at Middlebury, um, you know, a bunch of students invited him to come speak. Uh, a leftist professor was invited to come do a, a dialogue with him afterward to basically push back on his comments. And the students, via heckling and then later attacking, uh, shouted them down. And then as they attempted to get to safety, because things were really turning uh, violent, the leftist professor who was shielding Murray ended up being attacked and having to go to the hospital to get a neck brace. Obviously, it could have been much worse, and that's not nearly on the same level as, as being stabbed or the terrible arson attack on, on one of Rushdie's translators many years ago. But let's be very clear. This is These are leftist American students in, I think, the Northeast who just a few years ago perceived this as within the Overton window of, of an acceptable reaction to Murray's words, which these were words that also were going to be critically engaged with, and they deprived themselves of the chance to hear that, and in the process of doing so, turned to violence. To me, this is a really startling, disturbing phenomenon, and it's very important to draw differences between a fatwa being issued and the actions, which are thankfully still somewhat limited, of these like crazy leftists on campus. But all of these trends are really disturbing because free speech always and everywhere ought to be protected. I totally agree with you. And I actually happen to think that The Bell Curve is a very racist book. And I still think everything you said is true. It's like completely unacceptable how they behave. You know, the, the, the way to fight bad ideas is with, you know, better ideas and more speech. I 100% on board with that. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. Like, what could be more valuable than having <laughs> totally. a leftist professor engaging in that? Totally. Right. 100%. And, they, and they put her in, they put her in a neck brace. Yeah. <laughs> they they literally that was an example of literal physical violence from uh, intolerant students. Um, a really stark example of that kind of thing. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more rising right after this. And of course, we wish uh, we wish Sam and Rushdie uh, a full recovery. Uh, you know, want to hear more from him. So much more uh, brilliance he has to share with us. So uh, a speedy recovery to him, of course. Amen. Former President Donald Trump told Fox News this morning that his legal team has reached out to the Department of Justice to offer their assistance in bringing the temperature down after the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. Quote, people are so angry at what is taking place, Trump said, if there is anything we can do to help, I and my people would certainly be willing to do that because the temperature has to be brought down in the country, he added. If it isn't, terrible things are going to happen. This comes just days after a man was shot and killed by police after attempting to breach an FBI field office in Cincinnati. The Intercept's Ken Klippenstein reports that on Saturday, the FBI and the DA and DHS issued a joint intelligence bullet warning of the potential for domestic violent extremists to carry out attacks in reaction to the FBI's recent execution of a court-authorized search warrant in Palm Beach, Florida. So I think that's a great statement for Trump to make. He's absolutely correct that the temperature needs to be brought down. Um, I mean, to be frank, this is the kind of rhetoric I think a lot of us wish we had seen from Donald Trump after the election leading up to January 6th. And, you know, some of us, myself included, who think 
there was a lot of moral failing on his part for not you know, reading the room, recognizing that things were getting out of hand, and, you know, as maligned and upset as he felt about the result, it was it was his responsibility, his moral responsibility, to bring down the temperature so that the nation can move forward productively. That did not happen. It was a really, I think, embarrassing, shameful moment for him, lowest moment of his presidency. So <laughs> that sounds like a lot of criticism, but that's a long way towards saying, good, this is absolutely appropriate for him to say, yes, we need to bring down the temperature. Here's what I'm going to do to comply with the FBI and, and, and so forth. Uh, what do you think, Bacha? Um, you know, I, I, my first initial reaction was exactly like you just said, you know, it's great that he cares about that, that he's speaking to that. I, I then thought to myself, you know, he could give an address to his supporters, right, and say, right. guys, don't attack the FBI, you know, like, so in a way, it sort of, it seems to me a little bit recapitulating the failure of January 6th, the failure to stand up to his base. And I think, you know, I, I personally think Trump has always been more afraid of his base than he has been leading them. He's always been sort of more of a follower, more somebody taking his notes from where he thinks the temperature is at. So in a way, I, I feel, you know, if he's noticing that the temperature is so high, he's noticing these, you know, potential threats to the FBI enough that he's reaching out to, you know, the DOJ, I, I wish he would reach out to his own supporters. Give, You know, can you imagine if he went on Fox News Live and said, guys, this is, you know, a, it's a terrible thing that happened to me. They're persecuting me, sure. But, you know, the answer to that is not what you're suggesting. The answer is vote for me and we'll get rid of them. Right? Well, and I wonder if he perhaps realizes because of January 6th, he might, he might know, he might have figured out that that whole thing, you know, in addition to just it being horrible, absolutely lowered his chances, probably yes. substantially, of ever being president again uh, because of how bad it was. So maybe he understands that even tactically for his own, uh, for his own future, you know, he might like that he's back in the news spotlight or, or something like that, but he does not want his supporters to start bombing or or shooting at FBI agents or FBI offices because that is going to make, you know, while the 30% the or whatever it is of the country that is like, you know, ride or die MAGA to the end, um, the, the independents, the kind of people who maybe, you know, prefer Trump or Republican policies or the prefer, you know, have fond memories of the Trump economy, those kinds of things. But, you know, they have that on one side. They have to contend with some of his personal behavior and some of the the madness of his most hardcore supporters that really does turn them off. I know I know a lot of people who, who fit that description, who would prefer Trump mm -hmm. policies on paper, but cannot bring themselves given some of the craziness. So he might maybe he recognizes that and, and thus knows it's time to turn down the temperature. One would hope even for the, the sake of Trump as a political actor that he would recognize that. Yeah. And I think another thing piece of the puzzle is, you know, this is magnanimous Trump, right? Which means this, you know, the, the polling is good for him right now, right? You know, the, the Trump we saw on January 6th was Trump backed into a coroner who felt that he had no options. When Trump feels that he has options, when he feels that he's riding a wave of support, it opens up a kind of different side of his character. And so I think that he has noted that he is now once again the victim in a way that his, you know, supporters, maybe people who were defecting to Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. would recognize. And that sort of opened up this channel to where he's willing to sort of, you know, give the DOJ more options, you know, speak with this posture of we want to bring down the temperature, we want to do whatever we can for the nation. Right. Now, I don't think, and I'm curious for your take on this, Bacha, I don't think 
if nothing more happens here, if there's no prosecution, if they just come to whatever arrangement, the FBI gets the information it wanted, gets the, uh, the, the documents it wanted, they say, okay, it was a misunderstanding, whatever. I don't think um, this news cycle will matter very much in the long term. I, so much happens from day to day. There'll be so much new stuff by next month, month after. I don't think it substantially changes any calculus for whether he's going to run for re-election or you know whether he'll he stands uh, whether he's the favorite against DeSantis. Or, you know, I, I don't think it changes much. Um, now, if there is a prosecution, if this drags out several weeks more, they do try to prosecute him for something, then I think it, it could have an impact, um, really, in either, it, it could have the impact of making his supporters like him more, you know, feeding into this kind of persecution idea, uh, a not, a, again, a not wrong persecution idea necessarily. The FBI has done a lot of shady stuff that we've called out <laughs> on this show. I, look, I get it. Um, so that, I think, could have an impact. If this is just it and it kind of quietly dies out, I, I, I wouldn't expect it to really matter. I mean, I very much want to see what's in the affidavit. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of Americans really want to see what's in that affidavit and judge for themselves, and that is their right. And so I, I really hope that, that be, that's made public. Um, and so every American can judge for themselves, you know, how big of a breach this is. I do think that um, I agree with you that the sort of temperature is very likely to come down quite quickly because these Trump cycles are very fast. Um, I do think that a lot of Americans now um, have solidified in their mind a kind of clearer idea of what the deep state is, what it represents and how it could be coming for them as well, whatever, you know, level they're at. And, and that that is that impression is likely to stay and that there's maybe additional um, um, pressure on Ron DeSantis now to act like somebody who's willing to take on the, the deep state in the way that Trump really was. Right. Well, we would like to also note that in his statement to Fox News this morning, Trump repeated claims that the FBI, quote, could have planted anything they wanted during the raid and blames the current tense climate on, quote, years of fake witch hunts, phony Russia, Russia, Russia schemes and scams, adding that nothing happens to those people who perpetuate that. Nothing happens with them. Very sad, sad. Um, look. Do I think it's particularly likely they planted false evidence in Mar-a-Lago while they were there? No. But you can't, you know, you can't always rule out utterly kind of crazy sounding things like that because I, I don't think, not the FBI, we, local law enforcement, sure, does actually do things like that from time to time. It, you know, it comes up in, uh, in lawsuits against, you know, local police departments that they, they screwed up um, a drug raid or something, so they planted evidence, so they were trying to get, like, that, that stuff does happen. There's corruption in law enforcement. I think the, the, at the top levels, it's usually not as overt as that. It's just that there's so much the law has so many components to it that it is easy to entrap someone or ensnare someone if they put sufficient resources into it by virtue of, you know, they can interview you, you make some statement, even if it doesn't really matter. They're like, oh, that's not quite true. We can get you on perjury now. That usually is the shape and form that, um, if you want to call it persecution or witch hunts or whatever it is, takes at the form of elite law enforcement. Now, there is a, you know, there is a history of the, the FBI did, uh, you know, uh, Brianna talked about this in her radar last week. Uh, how the FBI treated uh, Martin Luther King and other figures that goes way beyond into like just absolutely crazy territory. Um, so there is some history of that. More recently, it's not something as overt 
generally as planting evidence um, or also and also that would emerge if that was the case if there's like uh, if there's because some of these plots like the, the Gretchen Whitmer one right they, that is an example of the FBI using a lot of agents to like organize the thing like, like it turns out that all of the undercover witnesses were being paid, many several of them were being paid or they'd be in discussions with the FBI to, to carry this thing out so look it does happen I we've criticized it a lot it, it does happen I think in this case it's not particularly likely that they would have planted anything, but rather that they're just kind of escalating. There was a choice of whether to escalate and go to this, and they, you know, they they use the the escalating choice because that's kind of what law enforcement does. Right. Like as with much of what Trump says, there's sort of a kernel of truth, you know, hiding beneath the bombast. Right. You know, for example, the FBI did continue an investigation into the Russia, the stuff we now to be the Russiagate hoax, even after they knew about the origins of the Steele dossier, right? right. You know, so, so, you know, that that is a that is very different than saying, you know, there's like this huge conspiracy against him, right? But that's not great, right? right. So um, I agree with you, you know, like putting your faith in, in the FBI, not a good idea, not something the left was ever known for at the same time, right. you know, um, I, I look at someone like Christopher Ray, a Trump appointee, I look at somebody like Merrick Garland, that, to me, these people seem very non-political and um, in, in his in his press conference um, I felt that um, Merrick Garland he seemed very very genuinely upset about the attacks you know potential attacks against the FBI but also he seemed like he had taken this decision not lightly um, right. and that to me suggested um, a non-political perhaps a failure to understand the political import of what he was doing as opposed to something being politically motivated maybe that's naive but that's just the reading that well, i no, got and that can be this can in a way be more alarming than the alternative uh it, yeah. it's not a, a massive vast conspiracy to take donald trump but rather the normal functioning of yes. law enforcement this yes. is business as usual for yeah. law enforcement and top law officials that when they have some suspicion of wrongdoing then they try to build a case that's how law yeah. enforcement works it's not conspiracy it's just what usually happens and that can be wrong it is something that should be criticized yeah. called out and i would say reformed because this is the norm it's not mm -hmm. some norm violating thing the norm i mean i guess it's norm violating that they're directing it at a former president but it is very much standard operating procedure and those procedures are the things we should revisit if we care about due process if we care about not unnecessarily ensnaring people in the actions of the state you know at the drop of the hat but uh, we'll have to see we'll have to see where it goes from here uh, We'll keep following it, and we'll have more rising right after this. Former Democratic presidential candidate and Hawaii representative Tulsi Gabbard actually filled in for Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Let's watch some of that. Europe is in a massive energy crisis right now, with the price of electricity in France just hitting record highs. Their government is ordering businesses to cut back on the use of illuminated signs and advertising. In Berlin, Germany, they're turning off non-essential traffic lights at night. Millions could be without heat this winter. In Spain, it's now illegal in some places to put your AC below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The UK is bracing for wide-scale blackouts this winter. Why is all this happening? Because of Joe Biden's sanctions that are nothing short of a modern-day siege. Now, this comes at a great cost, but Joe Biden told us, hey, this is necessary to defend Ukraine. Defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. We need to be honest about that. 
But as we will do, but as we do this, I'm going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at the Russian economy, not ours. Now, there are costs for us, but it's not Joe Biden paying the price. Vladimir Putin is not either. Russia's energy revenue is higher now than before the war in Ukraine began. This is a supply problem that Joe Biden created, one that Russia is now profiting from. Uh, it's such a good point. I'm glad to see it discussed. Uh, it's interesting that you're really only hearing this perspective on Fox News from a you know, former Democrat, I guess she's not a former Democrat, former Democratic Congresswoman uh, who is, I, you know, would probably identify as a kind of independent voice uh, who represents, you know, what, how the Democrats have kind of betrayed a lot of their working class values and a lot of their, on this issue, a lot of their previous non-interventionist values to the extent they ever had those. Really, it was bipartisan pro-war stuff forever. And they're, you know, tiny defectors, detractors of that approach in the Democratic Party. But now, to the extent there's any opposition to this, it's in, actually entirely in the Republican Party for the most part. Uh, but very interesting. The, I mean, I totally agree with her. I don't know how you, I think you agree as well, but the, the sanctions just have not worked. I mean, it'd be one thing if we're like, okay, we have to do this, and then this will, you know, this will destroy Russia or something. They'll pull out of this war. Didn't work. Didn't happen. They never do, really. They never work, but we keep trying them. Uh, they haven't hurt Russia's ability to make money off energy at all. They, meanwhile, you know, all the consequences we're dealing with domestically and the war still going on. No, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. I'm a big fan of hers. And I, I just think it's so important to point out that you're so right. The, the only place you'll hear arguments like this are Fox News, Tucker Carlson, right, who has a former Democratic presidential nominee co-hosting for him. I mean, that's incredible. You would not be able to see to find something in reverse like that on CNN or on MSNBC. And I totally agree with you that it's insane that the all of the anti war energy is coming from the MAGA right. I mean, you look at these MAGA, you know, the ultra quote unquote MAGA candidates <laughs> or representatives, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, the you know, there's a lot MAGA. to- Exactly. There's a lot to criticize there, but you also have to truly admire that this is the anti-war faction of the American government right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene out there voting against giving billions and billions and billions of weapons and money to Ukraine that we have no idea where it's going. It's just disappearing in there. And meanwhile, our working class is struggling. It's disgusting. And you can't hear anybody on the left taking on this anti-war stance, taking questioning, just taking, you know, American resources and shipping them off to a another country that we have no real interest in 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 whether or not the Donbas region is part of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that really worth 40 billion dollars? How? Justify that. Nobody can, but right. you will only hear this questioned on Fox News, on Tucker's show, when Tulsi Gabbard shows up. And I I think it's really great that there's that energy there and that and even lefties like me, you have to admire that. You have to lift it up. You have to listen um, and demand why is that not happening? happening on the other side. And it, it's not even and it's not even that we can say, OK, here's what the price tag is for keeping the Donbass mm -hmm. part of Ukraine, because then we could at least have a discussion like here's what it takes. And are we willing? Or maybe we could put it to maybe We could actually ask the American people if there's some you know, democratic will of the people to do this. And here's what it costs. And then we can do that. But we know 
there's no amount because this war is going to go on and we're not ever going to commit. We're not going to commit troops. We're not going to start World War III over this, which means it's going to be a matter of time, like probably like our conflict in Afghanistan and other places where we can draw it out, but the result in the end will be the same. So we're not choosing between, well, here's what it costs. It's just it costs this until it eventually fails, which is what I don't understand about our, our administration. I don't get why they don't realize that, that the whatever-it-takes-at-all-costs approach just means this goes on forever There's until, until the end of time, until we do give up. And then it falls into Russian hands, you know, it's de facto already Russian control. Like, even if the goal is noble, even if I agree, like, well, yeah, I'd rather the Donbass be part of Ukraine and Russia not be in the country and them have nothing to do with Ukraine. Sure, I'd rather Vladimir Putin was not the leader of Russia, which some, you know, pro-Western, enlightened, you know, uh, uh, figure was the head of this government. It wasn't autocratic. I wish the same for China. But wishing it doesn't mean it doesn't make it so nor does it mean that there's a policy we could pursue that would accomplish that. We have to be realistic. We have to be humble and realistic about what we can actually accomplish. And what we can actually accomplish is maybe something domestically for, for a change, not you know, in, these, in these other countries. And so. I think it's just very important to point out that even when this conflict began, the Donbas was not part of right. Ukraine. It right. was an independent region that was, you know, being controlled by Russian-backed militants, right? So the status quo when this all began has now become something that United States policy is we're going to spend unlimited amounts of money to put an end to something that was true when this all began. I mean, it's totally, totally um, mindless. And I'm so glad that um, Tulsi Gabbard is shining light on this. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan and Robbie tomorrow Brianna Joy Gray will be back and I will see you all next Monday uh, we're looking forward to it be sure to like share and subscribe so you never miss any of our content and for those of you who like to listen on the go we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts and catch us on the Plex TV app I keep saying I'm gonna download Plex and figure out how to watch us and then I'll report back and explain it in greater detail <laughs> thanks so much everybody and I'll see you next week Bye. bye